Welcome to the Big Ben History Podcast, this week with an unexpected operatic theme. You're listening to the Prisoner's Chorus from Beethoven's Fidelio, where men long incarcerated finally realise they are free. Stay with me to find out how this anthem of liberation proves relevant for one observer to perhaps the most acrimonious power struggle ever to rage in and around Downing Street. This podcast goes online 28 years to the day Margaret Thatcher surrendered power. And we have another conversation with someone in the cabinet room on November the 22nd, 1990, when the Iron Lady sobbed her way through her resignation statement. Robin Butler, now Lord Butler of Brockwell, has perhaps attended more cabinet meetings than any other man. His first was when Ted Heath was Prime Minister, and he went on to serve as Cabinet Secretary, the man in effect in charge of the civil service, under Thatcher, Major and Blair. Our conversation, to my surprise, touched on opera, Harrow School, poorly received leaving gifts, the gypsy warning the Prime Minister ignored, and an earlier cabinet meeting, which perhaps sealed Thatcher's fate. If you like this podcast, please do give it a good review on iTunes, where you'll also find an interview with Thatcher's former private secretaries, Caroline Slocop, Dominic Morris and Barry Potter. But now, for Robin Butler's eyewitness account to the Great Fall. I think traumatic is the right word. Um, Obviously, it was a very... It was a terrible moment for her, and it was a terrible moment for the other colleagues in Cabinet. Seeing the, the fall of a very powerful and strong person, perhaps particularly if it's a, a woman, uh, is a very moving thing, uh, whatever side of the argument you may be on. Tell me what happened. Well, um, the, the, the cabinet meeting was uh, scheduled uh, for that day. Uh, the uh, result of the first vote had taken place um, the uh, two days before, uh, when Mrs Thatcher was in Paris. Uh, she had returned, and there were discussions that went on uh, during the Wednesday. And um, it, it became clear by the end of Wednesday that her position was really untenable. Uh, she decided to sleep on what she was going to do, but I think we all expected that she would tell the cabinet that uh, she made up her mind that she would resign, and that indeed is what happened on the Thursday. And tell me a bit more about the meeting. Do you remember it in detail? I remember it, yes, I, I remember it pretty uh, cl- clearly. Um, as cabinet secretary, I set out to, as it were, stage manage the proceedings. On the previous evening, the Wednesday evening, it seemed to me overwhelmingly likely Uh, that she would have to resign and that she would tell the cabinet that in the morning. I didn't want there to be a uh, hiatus then and nobody knowing what to do. And um, so I felt that it would be right to agree with a member of the cabinet uh, who would come in first and to agree some words that that person would use. And uh, it seemed to me that the right and obvious person to do that was the Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay, uh, partly because he wouldn't be a candidate for 
the succession, as well as him just being a very senior and, uh, in a sense, neutral as Lord Chancellor, member of the Cabinet. So on the Wednesday evening, I was in touch with him, and I drafted some words which I offered him. I can't remember whether he amended them. But uh, we had, to that extent, stage-managed what would happen if and when she told the Cabinet that she was going to resign. And then by Wednesday morning, you know she is going to resign. Uh, the Cabinet gathers and she comes in. Does she speak? Can you remember who spoke first? Well, I, what I remember is I was downstairs in the anteroom of the uh, Cabinet with uh, members of the Cabinet. We were all expecting, I don't know whether everybody knew, uh, that she was going to say that uh, she would resign. Um, silence fell as she came down the stairs from the flat in number 10. I think that Andrew Turnbull, her principal private secretary, was with her. Uh, she went into the room and everybody shuffled in to the room, silent but with uh, uh, anxious anticipation. Uh, and uh, then she started her statement. And she started a statement and uh, she broke down, I understand. And she broke down, um, yes, uh, after three or four sentences. And then she tried to start again and again she had difficulty, and then uh, Cecil Parkinson uh, said that uh, she didn't have to go all through the statement, that uh, somebody else could read it for her, but she was determined to do it. She got through with several pauses, and then uh, she said, well, um, I'm not sure you've all heard that, uh, and uh, she did it all over again, and Second time, she managed to get through it without uh, stopping. And then did anyone say anything? Yes, James Mackay then came in um, with uh, the tribute to her uh, on behalf of the Cabinet, which uh, he and I had cobbled together. And that was that? No, it wasn't that. Um, one or two other people said things. Uh, I can't really remember who. I think partic I do think... Kenneth Baker said something. Uh, and then <coughs> there was some other business for the Cabinet to do. Um, it was very routine. I don't think really anybody took much notice of it. Um, but uh, <coughs> I think there was some other business. The Cabinet minutes would reveal that. Um, there was some discussion. I mean, I remember notably, she said in terms that... Um, she hoped the Cabinet and the party would not elect uh, Michael Heseltine, who had stood against her, of course, in the uh, first vote, uh, as her successor. And um, I, I softened that in the minutes by not making any reference to Michael Heseltine, uh, but by using some phrase like, uh, she hoped the party would stay true to the principles on which she had been leading them. And just I wonder if I could just take you back to another cabinet meeting, because studying it all, reading, um, reading all this cabinet meeting seems almost as important. Do you remember the cabinet meeting? I think it must have been Geoffrey Howe's last cabinet meeting when she rounded on him. That's the uh, accounts I read uh, about uh, proposals he's making for the, ca the parliamentary calendar that year. Yes, I remember it vividly. Uh, it was a horrible moment. Um, he was uh, 
saying, as the leaders of the House always did, that he hoped his colleagues would have their bills ready and bring them forward in time so that the, the legislative programme could get off to a full start. And she, she really turned on him and said, well, haven't you got it organised? And uh, again, a terrible silence fell on the room because, I mean, this was not only... It was not only rude, it was really offensive uh, to somebody who hadn't said anything which deserved this uh, degree of attack. Was that, um, as somebody who'd worked with her for a, a long time, was it out of character? Well, she could, she could always be sharp, and um, over the period before that, I'd seen her impatience and uh, her separation uh, from Geoffrey Howe uh, growing all the time. Uh, so there was a, there was a personal... Uh, friction between them, which had grown and grown. So uh, it developed out of that, I think. It was a moment of irritation that really really came um, into being because of her earlier, earlier disagreements, uh, uh, alienation from him. Uh, and it strikes me as an extraordinary... You knew her better, but an extraordinary act of self-harm, really. I mean, Geoffrey Howe was already cross... Uh, was a very important figure in the party. And yet, what does she do? She further alienates the man who can hurt her the most. Uh, yes, um, I think it was, <laughs> it was very unwise. But I think, as I say, it was just a sort of breakout of irritation. She'd have been much better not to do it. And then just talking about the resignation itself, it's quite interesting now, Prime Ministers have come and gone since. Uh, they don't resign to Cabinet. David Cameron comes out on the steps. I don't. I haven't checked, but he comes out on the steps, announces statement. Tony Blair sort of pre-announces a statement. Was that just the way it was done? Was was there something constitutional there? That was that was that your guidance? Why, why did it happen that way? Well, it was a personal decision um, on her part. Uh, she had consulted the cabinet beforehand. Um, she, she'd asked them individually uh, what she ought to do, and so. The natural thing uh, was to tell the cabinet first thing next morning, um, but it, of course it is a personal matter. It's not like calling a general election, where uh, really you've got an obligation to tell your colleagues in the cabinet that you're going to go to the Queen and ask for a dissolution of Parliament. Um, so it, it, it would have been possible for her just to say that uh, she decided to resign and go out into. Downing Street, but in the circumstances, the obvious thing to do was to tell the cabinet first. Even though it was the cabinet that essentially had told her to, to go? Well, uh, not all the cabinet had uh, told her to go, um, but uh, sufficient members of it had uh, said that, well, they hadn't actually told her to go, but they'd said that she wouldn't win. And um, some said she wouldn't win, but they would support her. Some just said she wouldn't win. Uh, I wasn't present at those meetings. Um, and there'd been enough of those for her to make her lead her to the conclusion that her position wasn't tenable. Uh, can you shed any light? One thing I've been speaking to some of your colleagues: um, this decision to see her cabinet individually rather than collectively, and the supporters think that if she'd seen them collectively, she could have harangued the parliament and uh, forced the cabinet into line. If you think, do you know who who was involved in that decision to see them one by one the night before? I don't, uh, but I do remember the sequence of events. Um, she came back from uh, Paris uh, in the morning, and um, 
she wanted them, or thought necessary, for her to find out, to, to take soundings. I think probably not just of the cabinet, but of um, the membership of the party pretty widely. And John McGregor was asked to do that. And then there was a lunch um, that took place in the small dining room in number 10 at which uh, he was present. And I think John Wakem was present. And um, they didn't say in terms that they thought that the, uh, she had no prospect of winning. But that, I think, was how things were developing. It's certainly what I believed. Uh, and um, so then, I think somebody decided, perhaps she decided, but I don't, or somebody advised her, I don't know, uh, that uh, she ought to check personally with members of the Cabinet what their view was. And another, I've spoken to some of your colleagues' officials as well, another observation they have of the build-up to that, that the first campaign uh, against Heseltine in the first vote was badly run. Was that something you sensed, or were you too busy essentially running the country rather than <laughs> to be involved in that sort of parliamentary? No, I, I, I sensed it very, very much. Uh, I didn't have a very high opinion of, uh, of Peter Morrison. I liked him as a person, but I didn't have a very, have a very high opinion of him as likely to be an energetic and effective uh, organiser of her campaign. And indeed, you know, what I heard in the lead-up to the vote uh, reinforced that, that he was over-optimistic, that he wasn't being as uh, energetic or as persuasive as um, really what, uh, in any way, she would have hoped. And uh, so, no, I think the campaign was run ineffectively. Uh, we've talked a lot about the, the sort of the day-by-day the, the -day drama, the little politics, if you like. Uh, again, looking at it, a couple of big policies, though, if you look at the longer-term causes of her fall, uh, the community charge and the, the relationship with Europe. Um, as somebody running the government, how aware and how early on were you aware that there's a problem with this community charge policy? Well, I, what I was particularly conscious of was the deteriorating uh, relationship, particularly with her two chief lieutenants, Geoffrey uh, Howe and uh, Nigel Lawson, and her very dictatorial um, manner, uh, which had grown uh, over time. And I again remember uh, that after the um, Anthony Mayer had run a against her as the stalking horse the year before uh, and uh, had been defeated, uh, but um, there the, the, the were signs of the trouble to come. Uh, George Younger, who was a respected and senior member of the Cabinet, came in to see her, and I sat in on that meeting. And uh, I remember him giving her the gypsy's warning and saying, if you don't take uh, more trouble to... Uh, listen to and to uh, uh, be more collegiate with your colleagues, uh, I'm afraid things will be worse next time. And so it turned out. So that it's impossible to separate the personal from the political? Yes, I, I think it is. I mean, her manner had changed. I noticed a big change between the time when I left as Principal Private Secretary in 1985 and when I returned as uh, Cabinet Secretary at the beginning of 1988. 
Um, during that first period, 1982 to 1985, there was nothing that uh, she liked more than a really good argument. And uh, exhaustingly, um, arguments would go on into the small hours of the morning, even past the small hours of the morning when we were writing speeches or when there was a difficult issue of uh, policy. When I returned at the beginning of 1988, um, she was no longer prepared to do that. I took it as a sign of, uh, of, of t growing tiredness. I, this is a very demanding job. By the time I came back in 1988, she'd been in it for nine years. Uh, she'd been leader of the opposition before that. And uh, it's not surprising that um, she was less inclined to sit up through the long hours of the night arguing. Also, of course, she'd had great triumphs. Uh, she'd had uh, triumph in the miners' strike. she previously had triumphs in the Falklands. And um, I think she'd got used to getting her, getting her own way. And uh, so she was uh, less inclined to listen. Moreover, um, she had great confidence in uh, the people in her private office, uh, particularly Charles Pohl and Bernard Ingham, Bernard in dealing with the press, Charles in advising her on foreign policy. And to be truthful, I mean, I think uh, that they could probably do uh, those jobs better than she could, I think. Bernard uh, could deal more effectively with the media and Charles could uh, write uh, speeches more effectively than she could. And she was really uh, very much uh, inclined to leave, leave those things to them and to go to bed earlier. Uh, so I, I think that this was a, a, a growing sign of tiredness uh, as well as uh, becoming rather overweening, uh, as people do when they've been used to getting their own way for a long time. You mentioned something there which I picked up on. You know, there clearly is a breakdown in her relations with the Cabinet, certainly the key members of it in the build-up. But she has this incredibly tight network of uh, officials and civil servants who were very, very close to her and uh, very loyal to her. It, it, you work with a lot of prime ministers. Is that is that quite common that, as a prime minister, your, your friends are the officials and your your problems are with your colleagues in the cabinet? Well, yes. I mean, certainly your friends with your, your officials. Um, you know, I think back to Ted Heath in 1974, uh, when I was first a private secretary in Number 10. Um, he treated Number 10 as his, um, uh, as his family, almost. Uh, he didn't have any other family. Um, so we were very close to him, and... When there are crises, as there was for Ted Heath in 1974 with the miners' strike and there's a lot of pressures on and uh, so on, then uh, you're, you, you become very close to the people immediately around you. Ted Heath uh, had five or six members of the Cabinet, his inner Cabinet, um, Peter Carrington, uh, Jim Pryor, uh, and um, he was very close to them as well. Uh, but uh, he, whereas he had very close political colleagues, Margaret Thatcher did rely very much more uh, on the officials immediately around her in Number 10. And just looking back at that meeting, we, we start where we started, all those uh, cabinet meetings you attended, was that one in November 1990 the, the most unique, the most dramatic? 
Well, it was it was the most unique and uh, dramatic in one sense. It was certainly the most tragic. I think it was the most emotional. Uh, there were other cabinets, I remember, you know, where very difficult decisions had to be taken, and there was a good deal of uh, of tension. But um, yes, that 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 was the that was the most emotional, and in a sense, the most tragic. And do you think it it, it had ramifications because of the way it happened? If one thing is Margaret Thatcher leaving after a long time in office, and that's always going to be traumatic for change of leader, but the, did, do you think the manner of it made John Major's life and your life afterwards harder? In some respects, it did. I mean, uh, of course, there was a good deal of relief uh, that um, she was she was succeeded by a prime minister who was not so dictatorial, and I vividly remember um, the first meeting that John Major chaired, and uh, it was like the prisoners' chorus at the end of Fidelio, where the prisoners suddenly <laughs> come out into the light and they can hardly believe it, and uh, they very diffidently start in a very low tone, and uh, then they find that they're not uh, shouted down, and uh, so they become more confident. And uh, so, yes, um, they got used to that quite quickly. On the evening uh, after she'd uh, announced that she was going to resign and uh, told the uh, cabinet, uh, that day there was the um, motion of censure in the House of Commons. Now, it so happened that it coincided with Harrow School having an event in the Albert Hall, uh, which they had every five years, still have every five years, to commemorate Winston Churchill coming to songs at Harrow. And um, the Queen Mother was attending that, and the Prime Minister and uh, Dennis Thatcher were due to attend it. And I happened to be Chairman of the Governors, and so I was presiding over it. Now, the Prime Minister had to drop out because she was answering the debate, but the event went ahead and Dennis Thatcher came to it, and uh, I took him back in uh, our car... Uh, to Downing Street afterwards and we talked about it and he said of course you know she should have gone after 10 years uh, I, w I wish she had uh, but I think he welcomed the fact and uh, that um, she was going now Tell me about the night she left Well on the, on the day when she left uh, number 10 uh, I went into my office in the morning and knew that she was going to leave and I went through to say goodbye, and I was just too late. Um, people were coming back down the corridor, having seen her out. So I didn't have the chance of um, saying goodbye to her as she left number 10. But I had already arranged, um, really to cheer her up, that that evening I would have a party for her and Dennis in my room in the Cabinet Office uh, with... Um, civil servants whom I knew that she was particularly fond of. And uh, so we had that party, and um, uh, there were some things that uh, went well and some things that went badly. Um, what went badly was 
I made a little presentation to her of the tapes of Yes, Prime Minister, which uh, was fine because uh, she liked those programmes. But I also gave her a pass to the Cabinet Office for her to come in and write her memoirs, and that didn't go down at all well. Um, it was clear to me that, you know, she felt she didn't need a pass to come back into the Cabinet Office. But what did go down well was that in my remarks, I said, and I ple- was always pleased, I said, that when uh, the, those of us in this room who have worked with you are old, uh, the only thing our grandchildren will want to ask us about and be interested in is what was it like to work with Margaret Thatcher? And uh, that, I think, is, uh, has turned out, certainly in my case, to be the truth. But nearly 28 years to the day, actually. I don't know if you realise that. Yeah, I didn't realise that, yeah. It's the 22nd of November, and uh, what's happening at Westminster as we speak. But uh, thank you very, very much for showing and making this time for us. Thank you. Great pleasure.